but church, if you guys have your Bibles, uh, go ahead and open up to Hebrews chapter 7. We're going to spend three weeks in Hebrews chapter 7, which hearing a few verses from it, you'll, you'll understand why. There's a lot to cover here, a lot to unpack, a lot to enjoy in Hebrews 7, although at first read it can seem a little confusing. And I've titled this morning's sermon, Melchizedek the Mysterious. Melchizedek the Mysterious. You see, there's a lot of mystery surrounding this character, this guy, Melchizedek. And that mystery stirs up something inside of us. I believe it does. It stirs a longing that really every human heart has. And there's, there's not a, a, an English word that really describes this longing that the human heart has, but C.S. Lewis described this longing with a German word. And I'll have that word up on the screen. C.S. Lewis used this German word called Sinsucht. And if you speak German, I realize I probably just butchered that really bad. But the German word is Sinsucht. And uh, Lewis says that that word means this longing for the mysterious the wonderful, the otherworldly that our daily experience does not satisfy. We have this inconsolable longing in the human heart and we don't always know for what. We don't know what we are longing for, but there is this intense awareness in every human heart that something is missing. And we oftentimes can feel this way in life. There are many things that happen to us in our life that we don't quite understand why they are happening. We feel like something is missing. We feel like it's a bit incomplete. And in that mystery, we long for something more. We long for something more wonderful. We long for someone that is not of this world. And so much of our lives, but so much of our lives, they still, it still remains a mystery to us. Sometimes we feel like we're in the dark. Like, what is God up to when he allows us to go through this illness or to go through this injury? Like, what is, what is God up to? I feel like I'm in the dark about this. This is a mystery. Or what about when we suffer the loss of a relationship or a friendship and, and, and things go south and we, we lose a good friend or a, or a family member, or there's a fracture in the relationship, we feel like we're in the dark, what's going on, I, I, I want this, this feels incomplete, this feels like a mystery. Or maybe it's just any other sort of hardship or trial or even persecution that we might go through. We at times can feel like it's a mystery to us. Why is this happening? We feel like we are in the dark. And so before we jump into this sermon today, I want you right now to really ponder this, really think about this. Think about your own life. What is going on right now in your life that you feel like you are in the dark about? Think about it. What, what situation, what maybe relationship, what, what event has happened recently in your life that you feel like you are in the dark about and you have no idea how God is going to use it for his glory and your good. You can't see it. You're in the dark. It's a mystery. What is that for you? Think about that. Get that. Hold it in your mind. Because the good news I have for you this morning is that God often uses mystery and he often uses darkness to reveal himself to us. 
And you see, the mystery of Melchizedek stirs up in us this longing for something more. A longing for something or someone better. A longing for someone more wonderful than anything this world has to offer. And this morning we're going to see how the mystery of Melchizedek, how it helps us enjoy and experience someone much more wonderful than anything this world could offer us. Proverbs 25 verse 2 says, It is the glory of God to conceal things, but the glory of kings is to search things out. So let's go to the Lord in prayer, and let's ask for his help as we search these things out this morning. Father God, we do ask for your help. As we come to your word this morning, as we come to some things that are maybe hard to understand, hard to work through, Lord, we ask for your help. We ask that you would give light, O oh Lord, to your word and your truth. Father, the calling that you have called me to this morning to proclaim your word, it, it, it feels like an, an impossible task. And yet, Lord, I know whatever simple offerings I have to give, that you can do a great work in and through them. So, Lord, give us ears to hear. Give us hearts to really uh, receive this word. Lord, help me preach to your people the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places and to everyone that's in here this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Hebrews 7, verse 1. Hebrews 7, verse 1. It says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. All right, so the author of Hebrews is writing to a people who have, for the most part, experienced the Levitical priesthood. But just like all human beings, they down deep in their hearts, they are longing for something better. They, they, don't, they don't know exactly what or who it is they are longing for, but our author is trying to show them that there is a better priest that their hearts are longing for. There is a better representative between God and man, but he doesn't come from the Levitical priesthood. He comes instead from the order of Melchizedek. Now, we hear the name Melchizedek, and we're like, okay, who, who's that? What's, what's the big deal? Uh, however, the original recipients of Hebrews, this would have been like a big light bulb over the head moment for them, okay? Because for them, the story of Melchizedek is like a long mystery novel that the people of God have been strung along on for thousands of years, and now finally they are starting to see what's going on. 
people had been hearing about Melchizedek for centuries and centuries, and every time they heard about him, they knew something stirred in their hearts for something more. But at this point, they still had more questions than answers about Melchizedek. You see, Melchizedek was first introduced back in Genesis 14, which we will go there in a few minutes. He's also then referenced in Psalm 110. But then there are years and years of silence until the book of Hebrews is written. And whenever there is silence about something, speculation starts happening. Suspense starts building. And so there was a, in Jewish literature, there was a lot of speculation about this guy Melchizedek and about who he was and what he was all about. So one of those speculations was that Melchizedek was, uh, in fact, Shem, Noah's son, Shem, okay? Uh, Some people speculated that Shem and Melchizedek were the same person. Now, there's there's not necessarily biblical evidence to support this. However, it is interesting when you draw out the timelines of how long people were living that, in fact, yes, Shem would have lived, would, would have still been alive at the time of Abraham. And in fact, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob could have gone and asked old man Shem to tell them about that flood story that he told all the kids. So there's, there's no biblical evidence to support this. It, it, it's likely that what happened was people were speculating about who Melchizedek was, and some Jewish scholars were maybe a bit embarrassed that their great father Abraham would recognize and honor a Canaanite priest king like this by tithing to him. And so it would seem a bit better if Abraham simply was just honoring an ancestor, okay? And so that's where the speculation about Shem came from. Was Melchizedek and, were, were Melchizedek and Shem the same person? Others had speculated that Melchizedek was an angel, like he was Michael or Gabriel or another angel. And then others have speculated that Melchizedek was Jesus, making an Old Testament appearance, a Christophany. Again, no, no real biblical evidence to support this, but we acknowledge that a lot of speculation has happened. But I think verse 3 is going to help us understand this a bit better. So look at Hebrews 7, verse 3. When the author of Hebrews writes, He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. You can understand why there was maybe some speculation, right? But, but what he means in verse 3 is that in Scripture, we don't see a genealogy given for Melchizedek. And that's true. Scripture doesn't say. Scripture doesn't give us a genealogy. And the reason that this is even mentioned is because the original recipients of this letter or this sermon to the Hebrews, they would have been used to the Levitical priesthood and the Mosaic law that said priest had to be in the family line of Levi. And so when they hear someone is a priest, they would have expected a family line to be traced back to the family tree of Levi. But what our author here in Hebrews is trying to teach us is that there is a better priest who has come that is not in Levi's line. In fact, he's in Judah's line, which is a kingly line. And he, but he can still be priest because he's after the order of Melchizedek. And the order of Melchizedek did not depend upon a family lineage, but instead on God's calling and appointment. 
Are you guys still with me? I know this is, okay, stick, stick with me with some of the Melchizedek stuff, okay? So our author is not trying to tell us that Melchizedek literally did not have a mom or a dad. What he's trying to show us is that scripture doesn't tell us because it doesn't matter. The Melchizedekian priesthood is not dependent upon a family tree. It's bigger, it's better than the Levitical priesthood. And then when we think about the question of whether or not Melchizedek was an Old Testament appearance of Jesus, notice that verse 3 doesn't say that Melchizedek was the Son of God, but it says that Melchizedek resembled the Son of God. And here's where we need to understand this concept of typology, all right? Typology. This is going to be important for us for the rest of our study of Hebrews. All right, I'm going to give you guys a technical definition of typology, and then we'll break it down a little bit more, okay? So one of the Bible dictionaries gives the definition of typology as a literary hermeneutical device in which a person, event, or institution in the Old Testament is understood to correspond with a person, event, or institution in the New Testament, okay? So more simply put, typology is understanding that there are some figures, there are some symbols, there are some events and people in the Old Testament that are foreshadowing something that is to come in the New Testament, all right? And we're going to see this when we look at the, the tabernacle and what that was pointing to. But often, these types or these foreshadowings are pointing to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, you have to understand that typology is not just something that seminary nerds came up with, okay? Uh, it, it is actually a biblical word, all right? So from Romans 5, verse 14 is where we, uh, one example of where we get this word. When Paul writes to the Romans, he writes, Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. He was a type. Adam was a type of the antitype Christ who was to come. In Adam, we all fell into sin and death. In Christ, we experience righteousness and life. Now, there are many different types that we see in the Old Testament, but, 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 but they can be described as, as shadows, uh, shadows of the true substance that's coming in the New Testament. And so I don't think that there's necessarily any reason to force upon this text that Melchizedek was, in fact, Jesus, or that he was Shem, or that he was an angel, all right? I, my best guess, I think Melchizedek was just a dude, all right? He was a guy who stirs up in us a longing for someone more wonderful because he's a shadow, he's a pointing to the true substance who was to come in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so scripture doesn't tell us Melchizedek's genealogy, but that doesn't mean that he didn't have one. It means that he is a priest not because of his family lineage, but because of his call and appointment by God, just like Jesus. Melchizedek was a priest and a king, just like Jesus. And so some of the mystery of Melchizedek might hopefully be starting to come into focus a little bit. He's always going to remain a bit mysterious to us. But the mystery for thousands of years is now starting to reveal just how glorious Jesus is. That he can be both priest and king. 
And his priesthood is eternal. And it's bigger than the the Levitical priesthood. It's bigger than the Mosaic covenant or the nation of Israel. And then verse 4, look at this. Verse 4 says, see how great this Melchizedek was. Even Abraham tithed to him. And so I want you guys to see this, all right? turn, Turn back to Genesis 14. Turn back to Genesis 14 to see just how great this Melchizedek was. And you might be wondering, why do I care how great Melchizedek was? Well, you should care. Because the more you can see how great Melchizedek was, the more you can enjoy how great Jesus is. All right? The more you can understand how great Melchizedek was, the more you can enjoy how great Jesus is. So let's look at Genesis 14, and I'm going to start in verse 18. Uh, If you want to do an exhaustive study on Melchizedek just from Scripture this week, uh, it does not take long, all right? It will be Genesis 14, it will be Psalm 110, it will be Hebrews, and that will be it. Now let me catch you up real briefly on where we're at in Genesis before we drop into the story, okay? What had happened was that there were four kings from the east that came down and did battle with five kings around the Jordan Valley where Abraham's nephew Lot lived. The kings around the Jordan Valley had been paying tribute to the kings from the east, but at some point they become fed up, right? They they say, hey, we're going to stop paying tribute. Uh, No taxation without representation might have been the the cry of some of them, right? And they, they rebelled. And so the kings from the east say, okay, and they march through and they just pummel them and squash them and they take all their people and their plunder. And the eastern kings were made up of kings from modern-day Iran and Iraq and Turkey. And so this was a huge military campaign and battle. And as the kings from the east swept in, they took Lot, Abraham's nephew, as a captive. But then Abraham gets his special ops force together and they sneak up on him in the middle of the night, right? And they they surprise the four kings and overtake and defeat them. And now Abraham is returning with all the people, all the plunder. Mind you, this this is pretty much a lot of the wealth in the known world is now under Abraham's control. And as he returns, he's greeted by two kings, And I want you to notice the difference between these two kings, one from Sodom and one from Salem, which was the original name for Jerusalem. Look at Genesis 14, verse 18. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. Notice the difference between these two kings, if you want to see how great this Melchizedek really was. The king of Sodom wishes to negotiate with Abram. He says, hey, give, give me uh, people. You can take the goods for yourself, but let's, let's strike a deal here. Let's negotiate something. But notice that it is not the king of Sodom that Hebrews says is foreshadowing Christ. And pray, praise God for that. 
But isn't this sometimes how we think of God or how we think of Jesus? Is that like, like he's a negotiator. Like, like he's here to maybe strike up a deal with us. Like he comes to us and says, hey man, if, if you'll just uh, uh, read your Bible and get to church, then, then I'll negotiate with you. Then I'll make you uh, healthy, wealthy, and happy. Or, or we falsely think that Jesus is a negotiator, right? That he comes to us and says, hey, if you'll just say your prayers and you'll just give to the TV preacher, you'll, you'll have a blessed and easy life. Or we, we, we think he's negotiating with us like, hey, if you can just clean yourself up, if you can just get your stuff together, then you can be my disciple. But the kingdom and the king of Sodom, the king of Sodom is not foreshadowing Christ here. Jesus, our great high priest, is after the order of Melchizedek. He is not a negotiator. He is not a negotiator. Look at how Melchizedek approaches Abraham. He brings out bread and wine. These were symbols of a royal banquet. And he refreshes him. Abraham had just defeated four great kings. And Melchizedek comes out with a royal banquet. And he refreshes him. Melchizedek shows himself to be a generous and a good king. This is how he leads. He doesn't lead with a negotiation. He leads with a generous and good royal banquet that refreshes Abraham. And not only does he refresh him with a royal banquet, but then he also blesses him. He blesses him. And this blessing is Melchizedek exercising his priestly duties, okay? So he sort of exercises his kingly duties by throwing a royal banquet, but then he also exercises his priestly duties by saying a blessing over Abraham. He speaks words of blessing and acknowledges that God has given Abraham the victory. Melchizedek, this type of Christ, this foreshadowing of our true great high priest. He does not negotiate. No, he refreshes and then he blesses. Grant, did you mean for those words to rhyme so that we would remember them? Yes, I did. Our great high priest, he comes and he refreshes and he blesses. And then look at how Abraham responds. Look at how Abraham responds. This is how someone responds when they are refreshed and blessed by God's grace. Genesis 14, 20. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Now I know what you're thinking. All right, everyone, hold on to your wallets. He's going to talk about tithing, right? Uh, us expositional preachers, we only get a few shots at this. And here the scripture has led me right to it to make sure we meet the budget for 2021, right? I can see it. That's what you're, that's what you're thinking. You knew, I know you were thinking that, all right? Uh, so let me, let me first clarify this uh, at first. I, a few clarifications before we talk about giving or tithing, okay? First is we are not in the middle of a fundraising campaign right now, okay? I'm not going to bring out the red thermometer and show you, you know, how many more funds we need uh, in order to meet the budget this year. We're not in the middle of that, okay? We are also not about to have ushers come down the aisles and pass a plate around, okay? So everyone just 
just breathe. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Uh, hopefully, if you've been with this uh, with our church uh, for a while, uh, you know that we maybe even go too far the other direction to let you know that we do not ultimately want your money. Uh, we don't pass a plate. We certainly do not expect guests or visitors to give at all. We would not want you to. We have all along the way prayed and trusted that the Lord would provide for us what we need when we need it. And we truly and ultimately don't want your money. But we do want Jesus to have your heart. And ultimately, to get to your heart, we sometimes have to go through your wallet. Because your wallet sometimes has a hold on your heart. Can we just be honest and acknowledge that? All right, one more clarification. All right, one more clarification. I am also not going to argue from this passage in Genesis or in Hebrews uh, that, that every Christian is lawfully bound to a 10% tithe like the people of God were with the Levitical priests, okay? I'm not going to make that argument today. But, but, what is interesting about Hebrews teaching about tithing and referencing Abraham and Melchizedek is that it does teach us that tithing or this giving to God is bigger than just the Levitical priesthood because this is happening before all that, all right? And so let's just try to understand this for a moment, okay? In the ancient world, paying a tithe was a way of recognizing someone's superiority. It was a sign of you submitting yourself to them, of, of coming under subjection to them. And that's why some of the Jewish scholars, right, were offended to think that uh, Abraham would tithe to a Gentile, to a, a Canaanite priest king, right? That was offensive because a tithe was, was, was someone acknowledging the superiority of another and coming under submission and subjection to them. And so Abraham tithing to Melchizedek it is a big deal, and it's really sort of shocking when you read it in the Old Testament. I mean, he had just conquered four kings who had just conquered five kings, and there are a lot of riches and plunder that Abraham have has. Some people at this point think that Abraham might have been the richest person in the world at this point. So we are talking about a significant tithe. Okay, Melchizedek could have upgraded some stuff in the sanctuary with this tithe, all right? But Abraham, even though he might have been the richest person in the world, what does he do? He recognizes Melchizedek as being a priest and a king of God, a representative, a mediator between God and man. Abraham has experienced the grace of God, and he responds with grateful giving. He responds with grateful giving. And so the question is, if Abraham recognized the grace he had received from God through Melchizedek and responded with grateful giving, shouldn't we also recognize the grace we have received from God through Christ and respond with grateful giving? That there is a biblical precedent we see throughout Scripture that his, God's people are grateful givers to the Lord. We see it before the Levitical priesthood, we see it in the Levitical priesthood, and we even see it afterwards in the early church. And so we recognize the, superior, the superiority of Jesus. We submit and subject ourselves to him by giving to his body. 
And God tells us that the church is the body of Christ. And therefore, we recognize the superiority of Jesus. We subject ourselves to him by giving to the church both near and far, both locally and globally. And we do this for God's glory and our good. Now, how can I say that? God is glorified as the needs of his bride are provided for so that his people can have places to gather and they can have pastors dedicating themselves to the ministry of the word and prayer and so that the needs of the saints and the community can be met and so that the mission of the church can carry on. God is certainly glorified through our giving. But not only is God glorified when we give, but a lot of good happens to us when we give as well. Every time I give, the the Lord is freeing me from materialism and from consumerism. And he's reorienting my focus, not on my kingdom, but on his kingdom. And he's giving me a stronger love for his bride. For where my treasure is, there my heart will be also. But listen, grateful giving as a response to the grace we have experienced, it should go way beyond just money. So let's not get caught up on the money thing. We should be giving our time, our energy, our gifts, and our abilities to Jesus as well. I mean, can you imagine what could happen in this church body and in our community if the people of God who had really experienced and enjoyed the grace of God responded accordingly? Can, can you imagine what would happen if we all, as the people of God in Franklin and the surrounding areas, if we gave up the, the first moments of our day to the Lord in prayer and Bible reading? Can you imagine what would happen if we all took our specific giftedness and our abilities and our skills and we put them to use first for the kingdom of God instead of just our own endeavors? Can you imagine what could happen for generations to come here in Franklin if a people who really enjoyed the grace of God and were captivated by the glory of Christ so much so that they responded with lives of grateful giving every single day? May that happen here. May our lives be marked as ones who are grateful givers. And so when you are experiencing mystery in life, think about what I had you think about at the very start, right? That, that, that situation or that relationship or whatever's happening in your life that you feel like you're in the dark in, that you feel like there's some mystery as to how God might be working there. When you are in those moments and you are unsure and you feel like you're in the dark, the natural response will be to grab. Your natural response in the dark is to grab hold. You want to try to grab for control. You want to grab for security. You want to grab something to keep you safe. But listen, God often uses the mystery and the darkness of life to reveal himself to you. And that longing to grab 
was not meant to be satisfied by grabbing for stuff or things or possessions or people. That longing to grab was meant to lead you to grab hold of Christ. He uses the mystery. He uses the darkness to show you that he's given you himself. And it is his presence in our lives that refreshes us and blesses us. Therefore, we do not need to grab for anything or anyone other than Christ. But instead, we can live lives that are marked by giving. But don't miss this. Don't miss this. In order for us to gratefully give and not grab, we really have to enjoy what Jesus has given us. You, you, you can't, you can't, there are times when I've been guilted in to, to giving of myself to a church or to people. That, that is a fuel that will not last for long. You will run empty very quickly if you are driven by a guilt. No, people that are lifelong givers, they are driven by grace. They are ones who have experienced and enjoyed the grace of God in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And it is that grace that is going to fuel us to the end. So, so look back at Hebrews uh, chapter 7. Flip back to Hebrews chapter 7. And I want you to see what you have been given in Christ. Hebrews 7, verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to, Abraham, and to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. That is first, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem. That is, king of of peace, excuse me. The name Melchizedek is important. All right? Whether it was his actual name or the title that was given to him, scholars might disagree over, but the point is what this name or title means. The name Melchizedek is foreshadowing the person and work of Jesus Christ. The Hebrew word Melech means king, the word Zedek means righteousness, and therefore the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness, or my king is righteous. And then our author points out that he's also the king of Salem, which many people think was, is the original name for Jerusalem. Melchizedek is the priest king of Jerusalem, and the name of Salem means peace. King of righteousness and king of peace. When God's word speaks of righteousness, let's understand what that means. He's speaking of a rightness before God, most simply put. Righteousness is a rightness before God, an uprightness, a, a just, a, a honorable. This is right before God, righteousness. When the Bible speaks of peace, it's speaking of shalom which means more than just a lack of conflict, but it's referring to a completeness, a wholeness, a soundness, peace. And don't we all long for that 
peace. Don't we all long for shalom? We long for a completeness, a perfection. We long to first be right before God, and then we long for things to be right in his world. We're longing for that. We long for this in our hearts, for things to just be right, for them to be complete, for them to be shalom. We long for this in our church. We long for this in our city and in our country and in our world. But it seems so elusive to us. The more we strive after it, the more we just make a mess of things. I don't even have to try to convince you of that right now, just right? But the reason that peace or shalom seems so mysterious or elusive is because we don't understand how to obtain it. But the mystery of Melchizedek brings us to light. And it's all in his name. Righteousness, then peace. And this is the order that God's word lays out for us. Righteousness, then peace. This is what the world does not understand. You cannot have peace. You cannot have completeness and soundness and unity and a utopia without first having righteousness. The prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah 32, verse 17, he writes, And the effect of righteousness will be peace. And the result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. This is why we have to see how our pursuit of peace or our pursuit of unity or a pursuit of completeness and having a sound society, we will never get that. We will never be able to successfully pursue that unless we pursue righteousness and righteousness is only found in Christ. Paul, speaking of Jesus, here's the gospel in one verse, 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Peace is only obtained through righteousness, and righteousness is only found in Christ, church. You see, our great king, our great high priest, is better than any priest that has come before him because he himself is righteous. He is perfectly righteous. But not only that, not only is he righteous, but he also then gives us his righteousness. He is righteous and he gives us his righteousness. And in the same way, he is peace. And he brings us his peace. And so what he is revealing to us in the mysteries and in the darkness of life, is that in order for us to have peace, we must first enjoy his presence. He is the creator and sustainer of all things. In him, all things hold together. You cannot pursue peace without his presence. He is righteous, and he is the giver of righteousness. He is peace, and he is the only one that can bring perfect peace. Everything else that you grab a hold of, thinking that it will bring you peace, it will ultimately fail you. 
some quicker than others, but they will ultimately fail you. Only Christ can make you righteous, and only Christ can bring you peace. Church, behold the glory of Christ. He is righteous, and he gives us his righteousness. He is peace, and he brings us his peace. You see, you have been refreshed and blessed because of the presence of Jesus who has given you his righteousness and has brought you his peace. You, by grace through faith in him, have been united to him. And I'll I'll close with this, one last kind of difficult topic. Look at Hebrews 7, verse 9. When the author of Hebrews starts going into 7, verse 9, we're going to continue this next week, but look at chapter 7, verse 9. He says, One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now let's just acknowledge that's just kind of a weird couple of verses there, all right? I'm, I'm with you. It's kind of weird, all right? Uh, Levi is in the loins of his ancestors. So Levi is not born yet. And yet, in a way, Levi himself was uh, uh, paying tithes through Abraham. So what's going on here? Well, what he's teaching us is how Abraham was the representative head of the family. And therefore, Levi was under this representative head of the family. In verse 4, Abraham is called the patriarch, which means he is the head of a people. All right? Abraham's the head. Everyone that comes after him is kind of under the head, this representative head of Abraham. And in the New Testament, in Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15, we see that this is how God deals with humanity. You see, in our sin, Adam was our representative head. But by grace through faith, we've now come to be in Christ. Christ is our head. And if we are in Christ, then all of the refreshment and blessing that comes to us as Christians is because we are in Christ. Ephesians 1 verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Remember, church, if you have put your faith in Christ, you are in Christ. And this explains so much. We are all the blessings we have in life are because we are in Christ. It's not because of our good works. It's not because we figured it out and other people haven't, right? It's because we are in Christ. Therefore, when you are walking through the mysteries of life, when you are walking through the dark seasons of life, know that God has revealed to you in his word that you, by grace through faith in Jesus, you are no longer in Adam. You are no longer under condemnation. You are in Christ. Christ. And you are blessed with every spiritual blessing because you are in Christ. You have been set free from sin. Why? Because you are in Christ. 
You have been adopted into the family of God. Why? Because you are in Christ. You are loved eternally because you are in Christ. You have an anchor for your soul because you are in Christ. You are declared righteous before God because you are in Christ. And you can and will experience perfect peace because you are in Christ. Church, our God refreshes us and blesses us because we are in Christ, who is a good and generous king. And he is our great high priest who mediates for us and intercedes for us even right now. Surely he can use the mysteries and the darkness of life to bring about his righteousness and his peace in us. Church, that love of mystery, that longing for something more, that desire to see things made complete and whole, that is ultimately a longing for Jesus, who is our generous king, and he is our great, our, he's our great high priest. He refreshes us and he blesses us. He gives us his righteousness and he brings us his peace. Therefore, may we respond to this amazing grace with lives that are marked by grateful giving of all we have and all we are. Let's pray.